What's going on? Welcome to the New Music Business. I'm your host, Ari Herstand, author of How to Make It in the New Music Business, the book, third edition, available, well, now. Uh, the pre-order is available right now. You can you can pre-order the book, and officially the release date is January 17th. And actually, that's what today's episode is going to focus on. I'm going to read you a sample chapter from the book. There's no guest with me today, but this is a huge, huge deal. The the third edition of this book, I can't believe they, they keep wanting to make new editions. That is a testament to all of you who have read it in the past and shared it with your friends, uh, professors who are listening to this. Thank you so much for adopting this book for your classrooms. The book has now been translated into multiple languages. It's being used all over the world. At last count, which I'm sure this is low because uh, we haven't really updated this list in a few years. There's over 300 universities in just the states teaching this book. If you're a teacher or professor who are te- who's teaching this book, uh, hit me up. I'd love to hear from you. And we, uh, my publisher will send you a desk copy and teacher's companion workbook, all of that stuff. But anyway, if you do want to pick up the book, uh, if you actually pre-order it before January 17th, you can get a bunch of bonuses. Uh, the bonuses are valued at hundreds of dollars. And uh, you, know, you get sample guides, checklist worksheets, um, discounts on tuition for Ari's Tech Academy courses, all that stuff. And you can also uh, enter to win a Fender Strat, uh, consulting sessions with me, free tuition for Ari's Tech Academy. So head over to book.ariestake.com to pre-order, learn more about the bonuses, and uh, get on that email list at ariestake.com. And that's where we're going to be sending out a lot of information uh, about the pre-order, about the new book, about future podcast episodes, uh, the winners of the contest, all all that stuff. Uh, but before I get into reading this book, if uh, you haven't already, if you want to just pause this and leave a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, that really helps. Hit the subscribe, follow like button, all that stuff. You can find all of us that make the show happen at Ari's Take on Instagram and TikTok and Twitter. You can find me at Ari Herstan on Instagram and visit Ari'sTake.com for that email list. You know all about it. All right, let's kick into the show. What I'm going to start off with is uh, actually reading the preface to the third edition. If you hear pages uh, flipping through, that's because I literally have the book right in front of me and I am actually flipping the pages. Uh, normally, when I read the audiobook in studio, uh, they have a, a beautiful, nice iPad set up for me in a soundproof ISO booth, all of that good stuff. And um, I don't have that with me right now. All I have is the physical book that they sent me. So I'm going to be flipping pages right now. And uh, again, you can pre order the book anywhere. You, you find books. It's at your local bookstore. It's on Amazon. Uh, currently, the physical and the ebook is available. The audiobook will be coming in a few months. That's uh, I'm still finishing up recording that, and that's a that's a totally different process. That is for a totally different episode or a conversation over a beer if you want some time. So, the preface to the third edition. What has changed since the second edition of How to Make It in the New Music Business? Uh, COVID. But more specifically, what has shifted in the music industry over the past three years? And what have I added to this new edition? Well, for one, TikTok launched global superstars such as Lil Nas X, Megan Thee Stallion, Doja Cat, and Olivia Rodrigo, not to mention the uh, the countless other independent artists who saw massive success from the short-form video social network. I will go deep into all things TikTok how you can be successful on the platform, how others have achieved, have been successful, how TikTok has altered the global music industry, and where this is all heading. 
Independent artists and labels continue to grab a bigger piece of the recorded music revenue pie. And because the majors are losing so much of their market share, they're now offering artists record deals that were unthinkable just three years ago. I will discuss many of these deals, how they went down, and how you can prepare to receive them yourself. Of course, with the entire live music industry shut down for most of 2020 and much of 2021, artists had to get creative. And to make up for the lost revenue from performance fees and ticket and merch sales, which of course drives the majority of most performing artists' income streams, most took to live streaming. New platforms popped up left and right, offering both ticketed and free live stream events with lots of monetization possibilities. Since March 2020, there have been over 100,000 live stream concerts across all platforms. So get ready for an entire new section that addresses how to live stream effectively on any platform and breaks down the exact strategies used by the most successful live streamers in the world. Whereas in the past, I've focused mainly on the American music industry, this edition goes global. The book has been translated into multiple languages and has been kindly adopted by universities worldwide. So no matter where you live, I'll explain how best to collect all of your royalties tour your region, and build a worldwide fan base. And in case it wasn't clear in previous editions, I know there are many jobs in the music industry other than recording artists, and this book can be useful for you no matter what career you'd like to pursue in music. But to give some more practical direction to the non-musicians and music business students, I heard you, professor, I've added an extensive chapter on the many other careers that exist in the industry. Of course, now that NFTs, crypto, and the blockchain have dominated the conversation and injected millions into the music ecosystem, I spend quite a bit of ink discussing all things crypto. And if this sentence just made your head spin and you have no idea what I'm talking about, I got you. Keep listening. What else release strategies have evolved? Email, DMing, and text message etiquette have all evolved. Social media advertising and influencer marketing have exploded. TikTokers became a thing. Instagrammers became less of a thing. Success on Twitch became a thing. Twitter and Snapchat became more niche. And Facebook, I mean, meta, I mean, Facebook, I mean, whatever, Zuck. Press isn't what it once was. There is now an entirely new strategy on how and why to approach media and press. The Music Modernization Act in the U.S. finally got implemented and the Mechanical Licensing Collective, also known as the MLC, began collecting and distributing hundreds of millions of dollars in mechanical royalties to publishers and songwriters. I discuss what all the new revenue streams are and how to make sure you're grabbing all of the money out there that's owed to you. This third edition is far more extensively updated than the previous one, with new amendments in every chapter. Over the past year, I conducted over 100 interviews with the movers and shakers of the industry, many you can hear as part of the podcast. I've continued to keep up with the goings-on in the music industry so you don't have to, and have tried to stay ahead of the curve. I've added newer, smarter, more efficient techniques that others have utilized successfully, and I'm thrilled to share a bunch of recent examples of independent artists kicking butt on their own and how they're doing it. So, even if you've devoured the first two editions 10 times over, I encourage you to spend some time with this new edition. As for me, I launched a 1970s funk soul immersive concert experience with my project Brassroots District, released my first solo album in seven years, and ran the Uncancelled Music Festival, which raised over $100,000 in 10 days for hundreds of musicians and venues in the weeks directly following the live music shutdown. 
I got a crash course in politics when I helped change and rewrite California's gig worker law, AB5, by lobbying politicians, negotiating with unions and lawyers, and appearing on news programs across the country. I ran the three-day, four-night songwriting camp and conference SongCon with my buddy Danny Ross in New York City, hosting songwriters from all over the world. I developed and launched a handful of new courses for Ari's Take Academy, which now has over five thousand students we crossed a hundred episodes on the new music business podcast and i got married i'm staying active in music so i don't lose touch and because well (laughs) it's my entire life and my soul won't allow me to do anything else and i am keeping up with the ever-evolving landscape so that i can help guide today's musicians wherever you're at on your journey you now have a partner along the way we're all in this together So that was a preface to the third edition of the book. I'm going to jump now to chapter one. This chapter is called Why Music for Love or Money or Sex. It was never about fame back then. We just thought about what gave us goosebumps. Quincy Jones. Music is not different from life. I think that's probably the greatest attraction to those of us who play music. Herbie Hancock. If you're a songwriter, you're always writing songs. It's not a choice you have. It's an affliction. Chris Stapleton. If you don't love the process and you're only looking for the success of it, then I guarantee that the success will never come because you got to aim at what's in front of you in the moment. David Hodges, 60 million albums sold. Before you invest every last penny of your savings, destroy your relationships and hop in a van with four other smelly dudes or dudettes for two months, step back and ask yourself why you want to be a musician. This may seem like a dumb question at first glance, but it's the most important one you will ever ask yourself, and it will define the course of your life. Because I love music is not the answer you're looking for. I love Thai food, but I don't want to eat it every day for the rest of my life. A music career, unlike most other careers in the world, requires more than just a passing enjoyment. A music career requires a passion like no other. A drive that will sustain you through the months of eating PB&J and begging your landlord for a break on this month's rent. After seeing the 2001 Cameron Crowe film Almost Famous, I thought a music career was all parties, tour buses, band-aids who looked like Kate Hudson, and sold-out arena shows. Who wouldn't want to be a musician if that was a life? The reality is a music career can have these perks, but most of the time it entails working 16-hour days, skipping the parties to book a tour or practice your instrument, trekking through blizzards to put up posters for your shows, convincing your friends to pay $10 for an 11.30 p.m. 25-minute set at a dingy bar on a Tuesday, soliciting playlisters and influencers on Instagram and TikTok, and spending hours tweaking your social media ads to lower your cost per click. But it will be worth it when you step out on stage to a packed house for 25 minutes of bliss. Those who enter music to become famous fail. Not to say that those who have the vision of world domination fail. You need lofty goals and unwavering confidence to succeed in such a difficult field. But fame, in and of itself, will not sustain your drive. Fame should be looked at as an occupational hazard to a music career. 
Many guitarists pick up the guitar to impress a guy or a girl. I know I did. It worked. I got the girl, but she didn't last. The guitar stuck, though. And I quickly realized that my love of the guitar and music in general kept me going long after the thrill of impressing a girl faded. Hobbyists play the guitar to impress people. Musicians master their instruments to feed their soul. You must decide early on what kind of artist you want to be. You should please yourself first and always. Don't write music you think people want to hear. Don't play songs you think people want to hear. Yes, it's important to create entertaining shows. But if you bend every which way to attempt to please every single person, you'll forget which way is up and tumble over. Do you want to be in a cover band and play to hordes of drunk people singing along? Well, then yes, you do need to play the songs people want to hear. And you can make a decent living doing this. But this book isn't about how to succeed as a cover band. And I presume you have loftier goals than the local cover circuit. To succeed as an original artist, you have to pave your own path. Following musical trends to adjust your production is not the same as writing songs you think people want to hear. If you're true to your art, the fans will come. The most important thing you should remember is to be authentic. If you're a goofball, be a goofball. If you're an angry introvert, be an angry introvert. The reason fans connect to artists on a deep, spiritual level is because artists bring truth. Artists have a unique way of telling a story that's both relatable and personal. From the beginning of time, artists have looked at the world differently and revealed their compelling visions through their creations. And from the beginning of time, audience have enjoyed experiencing these special creations. Before you embark on this crazy journey that is a music career, you must understand that you may not receive much support from your family. Maybe you know that and it's why you've chosen this field. Maybe music is your family. Maybe music is the only love in your life. Great! But if you seek your family's approval, you won't get it with music most likely. Your family will not understand your career. Most of the world doesn't understand the music industry. Everyone you meet will ask, so are you trying to be a musician? Without actually understanding how truly insulting, albeit innocently naive, a question that is. There's a great scene in the 2014 film Whiplash, and if you haven't seen it yet, go watch it immediately. It's one of my favorites. The protagonist, Andrew Neiman, is a 19-year-old jazz drummer in the top music school in the country. At the dinner table with his father aunt, uncle, and cousins. His aunt and uncle brag about their son's successes. One is the star football quarterback for his Division Three university, and the other is in the Model UN. They ask Andrew, how's the drumming going? And he tries to explain that he is doing really well, but no one at the table understands what that means. Will the studio find you a job? His uncle barks. Eventually, Andrew gets fed up defending his career choice and takes jabs at his cousin's seemingly trivial little victories of touchdowns and school records and chides that the NFL is never going to call his quarterback cousin. His uncle asks, Got any friends, Andy? Andrew replies, No, I never really saw the use. The uncle continues, Lennon and McCartney, they were school buddies. Andy bites back, 
Charlie Parker didn't know anybody until Joe Jones threw a symbol at his head. So that's your idea of success? I think being the greatest musician of the 20th century is anyone's idea of success. Andrew's father chimes in. Dying broke, drunk, and full of heroin at 34 is not exactly my idea of success. Andrew protests. I'd rather die drunk, broke at 34 and have people at a dinner table talk about me than live to be rich and sober at 90 and nobody remember who I was. Even though Andrew is a jazz drummer, this brilliantly sums up every conversation every musician has with their family at some point in their lives. Andrew, even Andrew's father, tries to be supportive, but he just can't understand why Andrew wants to pursue a career that's so emotionally taxing with no clear path to sustained success. It's one of the first big hurdles we all need to get over. Even though I've been a professional musician for 15 years, my parents still hope, secretly, that I'll become a lawyer or a doctor. What does making it mean? Making it is survival. If you can survive, you are succeeding. Bruce Floor, artist manager, A&R, Switchfoot, Alan Stone, the band Perry, Dave Matthews Band. The idea that someone just has it is a myth that we put on those that we think are great. It's almost an excuse to ourselves to not try hard. Andy Grammer. The only difference between success and failure is whether or not you stop. Oak Felder. That's the subtle sickness of material success. There is no enough. Will Smith. A lot of people to whom I mentioned the title of this book asked me, how could I write a book called How to Make It in the New Music Business when I haven't made it? The gall! But I see their point. I've never reached the level of Super Bowl halftime performance, fame that penetrates the world they live in. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But that doesn't matter. Making it is defined differently by everyone. To those outside the industry, making it means superstardom. If you want to be a superstar, you need a boatload of money provided by either a label or an investor. And even then, it's no guarantee. But to make it as a full-time musician just takes lots of hard work. By the time you're finished with this book, you will have a clear idea of how you can make it as a full-time musician. Some of you will go on to be world-conquering superstars, and some of you will make solid livings as regional musicians. Neither is better. I love coffee. There's this great boutique coffee and donut shop in New Orleans where I have been spending most of my time writing this book. It's not a big chain, but the owners are super cool, the employees all seem to enjoy themselves, and they seem to be doing solid business. They've been in the same spot for the past 10 years. But because they're not Dunkin' Donuts, have they not made it? I would say they have. What about the local bookstore with eight employees that's been around since the 70s and is well-respected in the community? Since they're not Amazon, have they not made it? Or what about the online boutique clothing line that nets $1 million a year? Because they're not Nordstrom or Macy's, have they not made it? For some reason, music seems to be one of the only professions where the sole definition of making it is superstardom. If your Uncle Joe's co-worker hasn't heard of you, then you haven't made it in his eyes. Well, your Uncle Joe's co-worker hasn't actually heard of hundreds of bands you would probably deem to have made it. 
It's all relative. Your goal should be to sustain as a full-time musician. The big break you're waiting for will never come if you just wait for it. If you want to succeed, you must put in the work. I know you're saying to yourself right now, but Ari, I'm different. I'm better than everyone else. I am a superstar and they will find me. First, though, you need to define who they are. Do you even know? A label? Which label, specifically? And why that label? Or is it a manager you're waiting for? Will any do? The thing is, too many musicians are waiting for those with the answers to come a-knockin' without actually knowing why. If the reason you're waiting is because you don't want to put in any work for yourself, then you should just throw in the towel right now. Because even if Capitol Records somehow stumbled on you singing in a bar and said to themselves, this is the next big thing, you would still need to put in a hell of a lot of work. But the thing is, Capitol Records doesn't seek out talent in bars anymore. And even if they did, you'd have to virtually sign away your entire life to work with them because you have absolutely no clout and no negotiating power. I won't deny that a label at the right time can help, but not any label and not too soon. I'm going to reveal a startling statistic. Over 98% of all acts who sign to a major label will fail. Meaning, 98 out of 100 acts major label signed this year will not recoup their advance and will be dropped. So even if you somehow get a major record deal, the odds are against you that you will be in the 2%. Major labels promise the world to every act they sign. And for the most part, they have good intentions when they sign each act. However, people move in and out of labels all the time. So even if the head of A&R at Columbia Records signs you tomorrow and promises you the full weight of the label, she might be replaced next week and the new CEO may not give two shits about you and drop you. Not without refusing to release your masters or rights back to you unless you pay them every penny they had invested in you at the start, of course. But getting discovered is a fantasy of our parents' generation. It doesn't happen like that anymore. Well, sure, Rihanna was discovered, but that's the one in a million. You're better off buying a lottery ticket and funding your career that way. If you actually want a career in music and don't just want to be famous, you have to work for it. Labels typically don't want to sign unknown artists. They're too much work and money to develop. Labels mostly want acts that are proven, have a fan base, and are making things happen on their own. Of course, we can point to the exceptions, but again, they are the exception, not the rule. You don't want a record deal. At least not yet. You want to build your career to the point where every label is pounding down your door begging to work with you. And then, at that point, you can decide if you're better off continuing to go at it on your own or signing. You have officially made it when you're using your creative talents to pay all of your bills, not when you perform the Super Bowl halftime show. The Purpose of the Day Job If you're a songwriter... You want a job that takes your body, but not your mind, because you want your mind for writing songs. And if you work in an office, it takes your mind. 
Dr. Don Cusick, professor of music business, Belmont University. I'm going to be asking you why a lot in this book, because so many people just get caught up in a routine of how it is or how it's supposed to be, that they rarely question why it is they're actually doing something and if it's truly the best course of action. There's not a single musician on the planet that I know who has never worked a day job. I've had quite a few. Every single musician currently working a day job dreams of the day they can quit. Every time I got a drink sent back for not being hot enough or too sweet or not sweet enough, I was another inch further out the door. Why do you have the day job you have? The answer should be to make enough money to live on while you're building your music career. It should not be to grow in the company or to be able to have money to go clubbing on the weekends. Those are the normal person's reasons. We're not normal people. As Zig Ziglar said, the chief cause of failure and unhappiness is trading what you want most for what you want right now. Print out this quote and tape it up in your bedroom. Treat yourself to luxuries when you've quit your day job and are bringing in enough money with your music to afford them. If you raise your standard of living to match the fat paycheck that you're getting from your day job, it will be that much more difficult to strip it back down when you actually quit and have to live conservatively on your music income. You're not going to jump from a day job into a million-dollar record label advance. Get rid of that fantasy. You're going to quit your day job when you're making enough money with your music to pay your bills and eat. Yes, there are some jobs that actually can assist in your music career. If you land one of those, that's of course ideal. I've seen musicians get in on the ground level of video game companies and eventually get promoted to full-time composer. Their dream job. But I wouldn't consider this a day job. This is an opportunity. A day job, by definition, is a way to make the money to fund your passion. Ideally, you'll find opportunities which pay well, are enjoyable, and keep you inspired. In 2021, once the shock of the COVID-19 lockdown subsided, people began reevaluating their lives and having pandemic epiphanies, and the great resignation took hold. More people quit their jobs than ever before on record. You don't need to take a day job that will make you unhappy, uninspired, and disrespected anymore. Either take a day job that pays well, has flexible hours, and leaves you open and inspired to kick your music career into gear, or, better yet for some, freelance. Now more than ever, it is easier to find freelance work, no matter what your skill set. Lyft, Uber, Postmates, DoorDash, TaskRabbit, and the rest busted open the gig economy, but more specialized platforms enable high-skill workers to find gig opportunities. Sound better, Fiverr, Thumbtack, Upwork, and Freelancer are all great places to start when looking to market your unique skill set. Here's a radical idea. Don't have a day job. Now, I understand food, rent, insurance, or life costs money, and until music is paying the bills, you gotta eat. Yeah, I hear you. But don't call it a day job. That immediately puts you in the mindset that every minute of your shift is a wasted minute. 
it will turn into an infuriating drudge. So just don't get a day job. If you want a full-time job that's not in line with your creative and professional goals, make sure it inspires you, or at least keeps your mind free. If you're going to be spending the majority of your life for the time being here, it better not make you miserable. And if it does, you better write a damn good album about it. Stop calling it a day job. By doing that, you're admitting that you have bought into the 20th century concept of a J-O-B. Blech. Find ways to pay your bills, whether it's a well-paying 9-to-5 that motivates you or a string of freelancer gigs. Work smart. But don't get stuck. Trapped. I've seen it happen far too often. A musician takes a soul-sucking job, which pays incredibly well, thank you, bachelor's degree, and they get used to that lifestyle. Do not accept the promotion. I see so many of my musician friends justify a big promotion at work with how much more money they're making that they can now invest in their music. Bull. It never works out that way. They celebrate the promotion by blowing $300 on drinks and a fancy dinner, which then turns into $300 drinking Fridays and fancy dinner Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. If you accept a promotion at work, it means that you are excited to move up in the company, which you're not, or at least shouldn't be if making it as a musician is your ultimate goal. Find a job with the flexibility to be able to take off a week to go on a quick regional tour. Find a job that allows you to find someone to cover your shift when you get a last-minute opportunity. Find a job that doesn't make you work five or six or seven days a week. Find a job that doesn't emotionally, mentally, or spiritually drain you so when you return home from work, you don't just want to zombie out in front of the TV. Yes, try to have a good time at work. It will make you a happier person. But don't get too comfortable there because then you'll never quit. To build a successful music career like any small business or startup, requires a shit ton of time, effort, money, and work. Building a music career requires working at it for 12 hours a day, every single day. Of course, not many humans can actually do that, but that's what it takes. Are you willing to put in the time? That's why you have to quit your day job as soon as possible, so you can put in the necessary time. Giving music lessons is a fantastic day job because you can ease out of it when your music income starts to bring in more of the total pot of money you need to live or pick up more students when a few months are a bit light. Driving for Lyft, Uber, or a food delivery app is also great because you can pick your hours and work more when you need and less when you don't. Playing cover, wedding, and corporate gigs is a fantastic way to earn enough to get by. But again, like any day job, don't get too comfortable with this and make sure it leaves you enough time for performing original shows, writing songs, and working on your original music business. Cover gigs are a day job, and you should try to get out of them as soon as possible. And like any day job, they can be a trap if you're not careful. Do not use your degree to get a full-time corporate job. As happy as it makes your parents, you will be miserable, or worse, content. One exception to this rule, and I've only seen it done by the most disciplined, set up a one-year plan. Get the highest paying job you can find, live extremely conservatively, come home and work your craft. 
master your DAW, practice your instrument. Write as much as you can. Get out and see as much live music as you can, but never buy more than one drink out of the venue. And save every cent you get from your cushy paycheck above the cost of living and seeing live music. This is your research year. Most musicians don't have this amount of discipline because they want everything now. But if you're reading this book, there's a good chance you may be one of the select few who are disciplined enough to succeed with this plan. Because if you do, one year later, you can quit your day job with enough saved to sustain you for at least six months. And you'll be able to rededicate all that time solely to your music career. If you were working eight hours a day at your day job and four hours when you got home practicing... Now you can devote six hours a day working at your art and six hours a day working at the business. The backup plan. I never had one. If you have a backup plan, you will fall back on it. A music career is just too hard. Do not have a backup plan. If you're currently enrolled in a university getting a degree to make your parents happy for an education that they are paying for, fine. But you make damn sure that this degree is not for you to find a career job. A one-year high-paying job as described just before? Sure. But if you ever say to yourself, I can always find a job as an architect if this music thing doesn't work out, you will, without fail, in five years, find yourself staring at a blueprint. The 26-Year Marathon. The Goals. If you're achieving what you wanted to achieve with your musical dreams, then you've made it. Lynn Grossman, Secret Road, Ingrid Michelson's manager. I always tell people when we get involved, you have to be prepared for a marathon. I always ask artists, how do you define success? Because success is defined in the eye of the beholder. So what's your goal line look like? Jonathan Azu, Culture Collective. A dream written down with a date becomes a goal. A goal broken down into steps becomes a plan. A plan backed by action makes your dreams come true. Greg Reed A music career is not a sprint. It's a marathon. So many young musicians think that they will make it within the first few years of dropping their first single. I know I did. You need to be realistic about your goals and pursuits. Sure, there is a bit of luck that determines the speed of your success, but there's no luck in determining whether you will succeed. The harder you work, the quicker you will reach your goals. But what are your goals? Do you even know? Becoming a rock star is too ambiguous. What does that mean? Selling out arenas? Hits on the radio? Making a million dollars? These can be some of the metrics you use to define milestones in your career, but you need obtainable, concrete goals that you spend every day working toward. Goals can shift, mine sure have, but goals help keep you focused at every stage of your career. But you need SMART goals. S-M-A-R-T. S. Specific. Measurable. Achievable realistic, time-bound. This acronym was first written down by George Dorn in a 1981 article, but is now a ubiquitous goal-setting technique used across various industries. I want to make a living with music is not a smart goal. Sure, 
We all do. But that kind of goal gives you no guidance. An example of a smart goal is more pinpointed. I want to play a sold-out show at the Echo in six months. Here's a breakdown. Specific. Concretely defines what you're aiming for. Sell out a venue. Measurable. That's 350 tickets. Achievable. Very possible. Realistic. If you've never played a show in LA before, have no online following or traction, selling 350 tickets in six months is not realistic. If you've played LA a bunch and your previous show sold 100 tickets and you're starting to gain some traction online, then sure, 350 tickets is not that far-fetched. Time-bound. Six months. Once you know what you're aiming for, then you can reverse engineer it. Here's how you do so using our Echo example. Find out who books the Echo. See what kinds of shows are on their calendar. Do you know any of those bands? If so, can you hop on any of those bills? Do you want to do a headline show or a co-bill? Do you have any connections to the talent buyer? If not, track down their email. Use Ari's perfect cold email approach from Chapter 7 to reach out and get some holds. Once the date is locked, plan out your promotional calendar so every day you are working on selling 350 tickets. Reverse engineer. March confidently in that direction. Create a Word document and title it My Music Marathon, then make four sections. Six months, one year, three years, 26 years. Under each section, write down where you see yourself in six months, one year, three years, and 26 years. You can have lofty goals, but be realistic. These need to be smart goals. There are many different paths to sustain success, so I can't define your goals for you. If the live show is your bag and you want to build your live game, then your six-month plan could be to sell out a well-respected club in town, be the local opener for three national touring acts, and expand into five new cities. Your one-year plan could be to sell out an even bigger respected club in town, be the opener on a national tour, and expand into five regional markets. Your three-year plan could be to headline in 10 regional markets with at least 100 tickets sold in each and work with a respected booking agent. And your 26-year plan could include international tours twice a year, being a well-respected act in your genre, a collection of records you are extremely proud of, playing with a handful of your idols, and supporting the family on both active touring and passive royalties income. Very possible. If you're a studio rat and want to just work the writing, recording, and licensing angle, then your six-month goal could be to secure five clients and one paid sync placement. Your one-year goal could be to have five sync placements, earning collectively five figures, Begin working with a respected sync agent and have three records released by artists you care about. Also quite feasible. Your three-year plan could be to have at least one client whose record you produced and or wrote on reach gold status, land a publishing deal, and make six figures. And your 26-year plan could be to have been nominated for multiple Grammys, reached platinum status on records you produced and or wrote, and own a publishing company with staff, producers, and writers. If humans scare you and you want to create from your basement, your best bet is to work the internet. Your six-month plan could be to release monthly songs, garner 1 million combined streams, collab with other artists, and gain 50,000 new followers. Your one-year plan could be to have over 5 million combined streams, 150,000 monthly listeners, and a monthly income of $3,000. 
Your three-year plan could be to have 100 million combined streams, 1 million total followers making $25,000 a month, and your 26-year plan could be to run a production music company grossing $5 million annually. Or if you're a player, your six-month plan could be to get 15 paid freelance gigs. In three years, you're the go-to musician on your instrument, in your local scene, making enough money from just your freelance gigs to live a comfortable life. And for your 26-year plan, you are backing up the stars and are one of the most respected players on your instrument. These examples just scratch the surface. Have fun with this list. If it turns into a mini-novel, great. Really put some thought into it and allow it to be a constant work in progress. Print out this goal sheet and stick it to the wall of your rehearsal space. It's good to glance at every once in a while to keep you on track. Get a highlighter and color the goals you reach. Hopefully in six months, section one will be fully colored. Whenever you have updates or slight shifts to your trajectory, make a new goal sheet. Print it out and put it up. Don't just make it a dock on your computer. Hanging this tangible sheet of paper in the physical world gives it life and demands respect. Have everyone in your band make a goal sheet like this. Then discuss it in a band meeting. Make sure everyone's visions align and make one master music marathon sheet for the band. Because if all you want to be spending the majority of your year on the road, except your bassist, who just wants to record, play occasional local shows, and raise his family, then you want to address this sooner than later. It may be time to find another bassist. You don't want this to come up a week before you're leaving for your first big tour. Sound absurd? I've seen it happen. Yo, guys, uh, I don't know about this tour. I mean, we're not going to make any money, and I, I need to be looking out for my family. I really don't think it's a good idea, and I don't want to be away for this long. Really, dude? You couldn't have told us this like a year ago when we were planning this thing? Commence epic band fight in which you admit you slept with the mother of his children when they first started dating. Uh, Don't let it come to that. For the sake of his children, so have the goals discussion early on. Remember, these have to be smart goals. Make sure this list is extremely specific so you can reverse engineer it. Don't worry. Throughout the course of this book, we will discuss the steps you need to take to achieve your goals. This 26-year marathon list is just to get you thinking. Your goals and plans can always shift over time, but this will at least give you some focus and direction. Oftentimes, musicians aren't sure where they should be devoting their efforts, but with a goal sheet, you can always make sure you're still on track. Every six months, reevaluate your list. Right now, open your calendar and set a recurring block of time for every six months to sit down and rewrite your 26-year marathon. Making a smart goal sheet is the single most important thing you can do in your music career, no matter what stage you're at. If you're just starting off, make a goal sheet. If you're five decades into your music career, make a goal sheet. No one's above setting goals, and it's never too late to get your career on track. How to form your band. For those of you listening to this who are not solo artists and do not yet have a band, there are many great tools these days to help you team up with other like-minded musicians. Having listened to this book is the most important prerequisite to officially teaming up obviously. Aside from Craigslist, some platforms you should know about are Jamcard and Bandmix. But 
honestly, the most tried and true method of meeting other like-minded musicians is by going to local shows and open mics. You'll start to see the same faces. You'll be able to pick out the musicians, get to know the other musicians currently performing out. And, of course, attending a music school is a great way to find a network. Many bands form in college. Attending a music school throws you into a supportive environment with like-minded individuals. And even after you graduate, the network you built up will always remain. Yes, music school is expensive. And yes, it may not be for everyone. But it can be an investment in your career, like studio time and new gear. Why no one cares about your music. People will like the music, but they will love you. You want to be able to tell your story in a way that people can connect with you on a personal level. Hunter Scott, Trend PR. The most frustrating thing is to put out an album that you spent the past two years of your life working on and sunk way more money than you have into the production and have it just bounce around your local scene a bit and lose traction before it was ever gained. This is the story of every local band on the planet. Some are putting out truly brilliant records with A-list players and top-notch songwriting. Why does no one seem to care about it when it's so undeniably great? It's because there's no story. Everyone has a great story, but most just don't realize it yet. People love to be in the know and to be able to educate their friends about their favorite new band's backstory. Radio stations love to be able to give the 10-second explanation of why you stand out. Jimmy Fallon needs a two-line introduction that will get people to stick around. And journalists, especially, need a story to write about. When was the last time you read a review about a band in your local newspaper or pitchfork that discussed the music? The song structure, guitar tones, harmonic and melodic choices, drum tones, the pocket, innovative syncopation, varied time signatures, sonic flourishes, unusual studio techniques that they heard in the recording and were not spelled out in the press release. The things that musicians get off to, reviewers and average listeners couldn't give two shits about. And that, my friends, is the disconnect and the reason publicists and managers exist. These talented folks will help you craft the most interesting story that non-musicians will actually care to read. But for the time being, you are your own publicist and your own manager. You need to find the most interesting storyline for your project and run with it, everywhere. This should be in your band bio, listed in your press release, told in interviews, written up everywhere about you. It's the, he was discovered while busking on the streets of L.A. and now has chart-topping radio hits story. Adele's breakup album. The White Stripes brother, sister, husband, wife, ex-husband, ex-wife confusion. Bruno Mars and Megan Trainer's behind-the-scenes songwriting careers. Bonnie Iver's Northern Woods of Wisconsin cabin recording. Marshmello's Buckethead and Secret Identity. Cardi B's History on Reality TV. Lil Nas X's Black Queer Identity as a Country Rap Crossover, Lizzo's Marching Band Past, and Body Positivity. You need something that every journalist wants to write about. Every influencer can scream about. 
The story that bumps every other album release off the cover. The story every diehard fan tells their friends when showing them your videos. Some bands decide to go the gimmick route, performing in costume or focusing on their weird instruments, and that's fine, as long as there is a tangible story that people can talk about. A great song is one thing, but a great song with an amazing backstory is really what sells the project and makes you memorable. So what is your story? Everyone has one. Actually, everyone has a million different little stories that have led to where you are right now. Your band bio should not be each member's entire backstory on how they started taking piano lessons at a young age, and then you all came together in high school to form the greatest rock band the world has ever known. That is so bland, it's actually annoying. This doesn't set you apart. Have you overcome personal obstacles? What do you do outside music? Are you an avid reader of fantasy novels? Do you play arena football on the weekends? Is your great-uncle John Coltrane? Your story must align with your entire project. When people hear your story, see your live show, browse your Instagram, listen to your record, watch your TikTok videos, it all lines up. So home in on this story early on. Sprinkle it through your bio and reinforce it seamlessly in everything you do, authentically. Whether you like it or not, your story is just as important as your music. That cuts deep, I know. I can sense your blood pressure rising. Breathe in and out. You want to succeed as a musician? You're going to have to accept some of these truths. Musicians used to be able to rely on marketing departments and PR firms to craft their stories and reinforce them through album and tour promo. This is now your job to master. The disconnect between musician and blogger. One of the first concerts I ever saw was the Dave Matthews Band at Alpine Valley. I was mesmerized by all the intricate elements they effortlessly incorporated into a jam rock format. In high school, I admit, I became somewhat fanatical. I appreciated and studied the astounding musicianship. There are few drummers on the planet who play like Carter or acoustic guitarists who play like Dave. I sang along to Leroy's sax solos, transcribed Butch's keyboard solos, funked out to Stefan's bass lines, and of course, geeked when Boyd ripped into his screaming fiddle solos that lifted Trippin' Billies to spiritual heights. I lived in a Dave bubble in high school, surrounded by my musician buddies who got it. I went to countless DMB shows alongside 40,000 other Dave heads. So, I was quite startled when I got to college and realized that it wasn't actually cool to like Dave. I was chastised by the hipsters of Minneapolis and started seeing DMB top countless worst bands ever lists. But every blog article I read never actually discussed the music. What these bloggers hated were the fans, not really the music. DMB fans were typically classified as suburban, bro-y frat boys, sporting cargo shorts, popped collars, and flip-flops packed into SUVs who pound Bud Light. As someone who was never in a frat, didn't own a collared shirt to pop, 
grew up in the city, drove a rundown old Ford Taurus wagon, and drank craft beer. I was always so confused by these takedown articles. Why was my favorite band so universally despised? I started questioning my entire taste in music. But how was it that I could love the Beatles, Bob Dylan, Paul Simon, Miles Davis, Stevie Wonder, Bill Withers, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, James Taylor, Atmosphere, Eminem, Ani DeFranco, Death Cab for Cutie, Ben Folds, Bela Fleck, Jeff Buckley, Radiohead, and Prince, all acts universally acceptable to like by bloggers, but also love DMB, universally hated by these same people. I finally got it. Most music bloggers don't actually know anything about music. They don't know how to write about music. They only know how to write about the culture of music. And a band's culture is defined by who their perceived fans are. These bloggers have never actually been to shows of these bands they claim to hate. They've never studied music. They've never written a song. They exist in a world surrounded by other hipsters who bond over their mutual hatred of popular music's fans. They claim to love music, but they don't. Not like you or I love music. They love the culture of music. The Dave Matthews Band's perceived image has overshadowed their music. Regardless of whether you care for their music or not, it doesn't matter. All music is subjective. Some people hate Dylan. Some love him. Some hate the Beatles. Some love them. No artist gets a pass. There are plenty of people out there who don't enjoy music the same way you do. But they're not musicians. You enjoy great music, but your definition of great is different from theirs. You study music, they study the culture of music. So, keep this in the back of your mind when crafting press releases, your bio, and your entire promotional campaign. Unfortunately, it is not all about your music. You can't fight this. You must accept it if you have any hope of controlling your own PR and gaining any sort of traction. Does age matter? The question I get asked frequently by older musicians is, does age matter? There's no simple answer because it all depends on what your goals are. But I'll tell you one thing. Age has absolutely no correlation with success or talent. Uncle Joe will tell you, if you haven't made it by 30, give up. Stop listening to Uncle Joe. Joshua Radin started his musical career at 30, two years after he picked up the guitar for the first time. Matt Nathanson put out seven albums and one major label album before releasing his chart-topping indie label hit, Come On Get Higher, at 35. Lizzo was 30 when she got her first hit with Juice. Bill Withers released his debut album at 32. Sheryl Crow released her debut album at 31 after working as a music teacher, jingle writer, and backup vocalist. Daniel Powder's hit, Bad Day, came out when he was 34. Krungbin's Mark Spear was 35 when the band released their debut album and 39 when they first charted. 
Willie Nelson was 40 when Shotgun Willie came out. Bonnie Raitt didn't see commercial success until she was 40. Sharon Jones released her debut record at 40. And it wasn't until she was 58 that she got a Grammy nomination. Leonard Cohen was 50 when he released Hallelujah. 2 Chains didn't get a number one album until a month before his 36th birthday. John Andrasik of Five for Fighting was 35 when their smash hit Superman took over the airwaves. James Murphy was also 35 when LCD Sound System released its debut album. Andre Bocelli was 34 when he released his debut album. Rachel Platten was 34 when Fight Song reached number one. Butch Vig was 36 when he produced Nirvana's Nevermind, and it wasn't until he was 40 that his own band, Garbage, released their debut chart-topping album. Dan Wilson was 37 when his first hit, Closing Time, was released with his band Semisonic, and he was 46 when he won his first Grammy for co-writing six songs on the Dixie Chicks, now the Chicks, album of the year, Taking the Long Way. Sia had her first number one single at 41. Neil Young was 44 when he released Rockin' in the Free World. Chris Stapleton was 37 when his debut award-winning solo album was released. Debbie Harry was 31 when Blondie released their first album, and not until a few years later did they see worldwide success. Joe Satriani didn't release his first album until he was 30. Christine McVie of Fleetwood Mac was 34 when Rumors was released. Michael Fitzpatrick was 40 when Fitz and the Tantrums released their debut album. Thelonious Monk released his best-selling album, Monk's Dream, at 46. Louis Armstrong, although a renowned trumpeter performer for decades, was 64 when his best-selling album, Hello Dolly, was released. Charles Bradley was 63 when he released his debut album. And although a lifelong musician and producer... C6 Steve was 67 when he released his first multinational charting major label debut album. But these are artists you've most likely heard of, and this is when they made it big. If you take away one thing from this book, it's that you don't need to make it big to make it. Don't let age scare you. There are 16-year-olds writing better songs than I could ever dream of writing, And there are 50-year-olds dusting off their guitar, reconnecting with their soul, and deciding to finally pursue a career they can believe in. Age means nothing. If you work hard enough, you will make it, regardless of your age. That being said, life happens. And I'd be lying if I told you it was easy to start a rock career with a spouse and kids at home. Once kids enter the picture, all bets are off. There's this bit in Alex Bloomberg's podcast startup where he jokes with an investor about how parents fool themselves into thinking it's possible to work just as hard as their entrepreneurial pursuits with kids, exclaiming, you just get better at managing your time. They eventually concede that, in fact, parents can't devote as much time to their passions and careers as non-parents. If a music career is more important to you than a family, you have nothing to worry about. If you're 23, want to start a family by 27, and you just formed a rock band to take over the world, you're going to come to a crossroads very soon. You're going to have to decide whether you want to be an absent parent on the road with your band, 
or at home, raising your kids, working a nine-to-five. There's a balance, sure, and there are many successful musicians with children. But most of these successful musicians didn't have kids until their music career was coasting a bit and they had enough passive income that they didn't need to spend their entire life on the road. But again, pull out your goal sheet and ask yourself, can this be achieved with a family? Everyone's situation is different. Maybe your partner has an income to support your family while you devote all of your time and money to your musical pursuits. Maybe you just want to play locally and not tour. Maybe you want to be a local hired gun or a producer engineer. Maybe you want to be a YouTuber, Instagrammer, or live streamer. Maybe you want to live in the college or performing arts center circuit and fly out to one-off gigs every once in a while. More on this in chapter 9. Not every career in music requires incessant touring, but it's hard to be a successful indie band, singer-songwriter, DJ, or hip-hop act, and not tour. It also depends on what your idea of success is, and no one can define what success is but you. Remember that. If you're an indie act making five figures, staying at home, licensing your music to film and television, that's success. Could you make it six or seven figures if you toured? Maybe. But you don't have to if you don't want to. There's no right or wrong. You should do what's going to make you the happiest. Happiness needs to be built into every career decision. There are more important things in life than money. Actually, once you have enough money to support the lifestyle you want, you shouldn't make any decision based solely on money ever again. Okay, I hope you enjoyed listening to me read chapter one of my new book, How to Make It in the New Music Business, Practical Tips on Building a Loyal Following and Making a Living as a Musician, third edition. Once again, this book is available now to pre-order. You can pre-order the hardcover or the ebook. And uh, if you get it before January 17th, you get a bunch of bonuses. Go to book.aristake.com to learn more about that. The audiobook, if you like listening to me read it, is coming in a couple months. But get that ebook or hardcover book first. You can highlight it. You can listen along. You can reference it. You're going to want it on your desk to reference, even if you do get the audiobook later on. Uh, get that get that book right now. Don't wait. If you get it before January 17th, uh, you not only get those bonuses, but you also help us chart. You know how important opening week sales are, and uh, we have a shot at some of those big, big charts. So I would totally appreciate it. And if you get the book, post about it. Tag me. I will repost you. I will reshare it. Uh, let me know about it. I, I want to see you holding the book. I want you, I want to see the, the favorite parts highlighted and, and what you think about it. So let me know. Uh, give me the feedback. If you read it, love it, please leave a review on Amazon. That really helps. If you didn't love it, just shoot me a DM. Please don't put that out there publicly. <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> um, and uh, I, uh, I hope you have uh, a wonderful time with the book and the rest of the podcast. All right. Today's episode was edited by Maxton Hunter, theme music by Brassroots District, and produced by all the great people at Ari's Take.